the last month now, I've been our uh, interim teacher preacher. Uh, we are continuing to go through Matthew as we have been doing for, I'm going to say, at least a year and a half. And uh, is it two years now that we've been doing this? It is, it's been a while. And so it's really cool because we are confronting every verse through Matthew. We're not just picking and choosing what we want to talk about. And it's not always easy, but it is um, good. And I am growing a lot from it, had been growing from a lot from it. And even now that I'm teaching, I'm growing all the more. And I pray that you guys are growing in it as well. Um, because I don't want to selfishly be the only one that's learning something on Sundays uh, while we're here. And so while I've been here an attendee, I was a part of a pretty, um, uh, I would say, intensive huddled discipleship group uh, with the pastor and other people. That has since kind of dissipated a little bit, so I've been excited to get involved with a growth group as we have five different growth groups that meet during the week. Um, ben told me about how theirs was crazy this past week, had kids and a lot of people and it was really good and I was all excited because I finally had a Wednesday free that I could come up for growth group uh, just wanted to get my car aligned I was telling you a little bit and uh, a large amount of money estimate later found out my car needed a lot more than aligned and I decided to um, not drive and risk spinning my car over from the axle braking at 65 miles an hour down the highway so I didn't make it to growth group this week and if you did make it to growth group I'm jealous of you. There's jealousy coming from the pulpit. Please pray for me. Um, And if you didn't go to growth group, you can. They are open, available, um, really cool leaders uh, in in locations where I think we all live. Um, So I hope we can get involved with that if it's possible. So if this is your first time uh, with us today, I already met a couple. Sarah with no H is here for the first time. That's great. Um, Welcome to the gathering of Gateway Downtown. If you uh, weren't here last week, uh, but you've been here often, uh, Ben, uh, happy you guys made it back. Welcome back. And if you're here again and we're here last week, happy you made it back again. We're going to refresh a little bit about what we talked about last week, which was Matthew, the first 12 verses. Um, We talked about the life and the death of John the Baptist, a martyr for his faith in Jesus Christ. Through this, we didn't only learn about John the Baptist, but we did learn also about Herodias and uh, Herod of uh, the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas, and their relationship that was not deemed good according to God, of which John shared with them. They became jealous, and they had this big evil plot to kill John. And eventually, at the end of these 12 verses, we learn that his head is cut off and served on a platter. Um, Not a very pleasant way to die and an interesting way to die when you're following God's call and being obedient to what he says. And so we talked a little bit more last week, um, some apologetics about pain and suffering in the world and why is it that this happens. And we learned that through life, there is still nobody that has experienced suffering more than Jesus. And there is a loving God uh, in this world that is good. And while pain and suffering isn't easy or fun. Uh, God is not the reason that we should not believe in a God because of pain and suffering, but it is in fact um, pointing to God and our need of a Savior, which is why we have pain and suffering in the world. Um, We can find Christ through those things. And uh, one of the things I shared last week is how I definitely equate myself often with Herod and Herodias. No, I have not cut somebody's head off, and I think we can see that story and we can think, That is so extreme. That is 
the epitome of evil. At least I'm not that. Um, but what was the worst thing they were doing? The worst thing they were doing was not obeying God's word. And I think it's very common that I am in the word, I am in the Bible, I'm reading God's word, and I decide that I don't like it, or I decide I'd, it doesn't apply to me for one reason or another. And I choose to not obey it. And that does not put me in any better of a position than they were, even though I have not yet cut anybody's head off and served it on a platter. Um, I'm still not perfect, and I am still in need of a Savior, uh, just as they were. And so this week we're going to continue in 14, looking at 13 to 21, again jumping back into the life of Jesus and his disciples. Uh, so let's read the Word of God. If you're able, please stand with us while we read Matthew 14, 13 to 21. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. While we're still praying, uh, while we're still standing, let's pray. God, thank you for meeting us here this morning. Thank you for bringing us together um, in an environment that allows us to learn more about you, to worship you in song and in looking into your word. We pray right now that you will open our hearts and our minds and uh, that we can remove our troubles, remove um, all the things that clutter our minds and hold us back from hearing your truth. And uh, I just pray that you will give us open hearts to learn more about you and to grow in our faith. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So the feeding of the five of the five thousand outside of the resurrection, which we will be getting into next week, as it is Palm Sunday and Easter the week after that. Outside of the resurrection, this miracle is the only miracle that is actually referenced in all four of the Gospels: Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So Matthew fourteen. Mark chapter 6, Luke 9, and John 6. All of these tell the same story of the feeding of the 5,000 from five loaves and two fish. And uh, while they all tell the same story, they all do share their experience with this in a little different way. And I think we see this very often in the scripture, especially in the gospels, which are four different accounts of the life of Jesus. And this always perplexed me that while these four people, they all lived the same life with Jesus, that things were written differently, and I thought it was really strange, and, um, and I didn't like it. I didn't like that there were uh, accounts of different stories in a different way, and, and I would say it wasn't until um, I experienced something a few years ago where this didn't really perplex me as much anymore. I uh, referenced this before, uh, that I went on a trip around the country on my motorcycle with a couple friends, always a dream of mine to travel around the West and see all of God's creation, both in nature and in the people that he's created. 
Uh, and even right now, one of ours from Church Max is out doing this right now and experiencing God, and he's writing stories, and he's finding God, and it's really cool. And so my dad had done this once, traveled around the country on a motorcycle, so it was always a dream of mine to do this. And I uh, went along with a friend from college and a friend from high school, and we spent 30 days traveling 7,000 miles, uh, making a big loop from Denver and landing back in Denver again. Uh, a really awesome time, and I knew it was going to be awesome, and so while I am terrible at journaling, and this is a discipline I want to get better at because I think we learn a lot when we journal, when we write our prayers, our thoughts to God, and we look back at them and see how he has answered that and how he has moved in our lives. While I'm terrible at journaling and I want to get better at it, I told myself I would be awesome at it on this trip, and I journaled at least daily, um, often more times uh, than once in a day. And uh, so while I was on this trip, it was maybe after about a week, we were past the Grand Canyon, and we decided, I don't know, we were talking about what we were journaling, and we looked back at, at our journals. And my one friend, uh, he read his journal entry from day three or so, and he wrote the miles uh, on his motorcycle when we left Zion National Park. He wrote the time to the minute that we left, and he wrote some landmarks along the way on our way to the Grand Canyon, and he wrote about how many miles it was when he filled up his gas tank and how much the price was for the gas and when we, the time that we arrived. All of those things he wrote down. My other friend uh, didn't write any of that stuff down at all. Uh, we were all journaling a little bit, and um, I don't remember everything that he wrote, but more or less he was writing a lot of stuff about people back home and friends and family. And I looked at my own, and I wrote down, you know, where... We had left Zion, and we were on our way to the Grand Canyon, uh, and I wrote some of those specifics. I didn't write anything about miles. I didn't write anything like that. I wrote a lot about conversations that I had with people. Um, I'm very much a people person, and so that's what was sticking in my mind as I was at Zion, these conversations that I had with people, and it made me think a lot about uh, relationships and what do we do with interactions with people and how does God use this for his glory, and so all my journal entries were about that. And I realized that we all lived through the exact same thing. We were together every minute on this trip. We lived through the same thing, but we still experienced things differently um, based on what motivated us in life. And so that motivated us to write different things. So while we lived the same thing, it didn't always flesh itself out the same when we wrote it down. And while I'm not equating this with writing as the apostles did, I am relating this to what they did. So this is inspired by God. It is divine, these words. But it makes sense that these four different accounts aren't always going to be written in the exact same way. And so they will see a story, they'll experience it, and they will write about that experience a little bit differently. So we see that here in in this miracle. And so instead of just getting one dimension of this miracle, we actually get different Uh, four different accounts of how they word it. And so now this pearl uh, that is Jesus is not just a one-dimensional pearl. We actually can see the depth. We can see around it. We can see how polished it is um, because of these different experiences. And we can learn more about God's character. We can learn more about our human condition along the way. And uh, and so that's where we are here now as we're looking into the next verses in Matthew. Um, Last week, the first 12 verses, if we're looking at Herod, Herodias, the daughter, that whole Jerry Springer thing going on and how they ended up setting up John to die. This all took place on Herod's birthday. It was kind of a party of sorts. And so now these next verses that we see of Jesus, um, you could say that this is now Jesus' party. And it's almost a parody of what happened 
um, in the previous verses. And so here we are in verse 13. Um, while I'm calling it, saying it looks like Jesus' party, it doesn't start out all that great. It doesn't look like a festival. We actually see Jesus um, beginning by withdrawing um, in a boat to be alone. So there were a couple reasons that people say why Jesus was withdrawing. It's not necessarily agreed on by everybody, but one reason is that John the Baptist was just killed. John the Baptist, his very good friend, even more than his friend, John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin. Um, Elizabeth and Mary were sisters, and uh, so it goes a lot deeper than just a great friendship. It is his cousin, and not just a cousin and a friend, but this man prepared the way for his coming to earth. Um, man um, that Jesus was. He is fully divine. He is fully man. And this friend, this cousin that prepared his way is now dead. So what do you do when you're going through this time when you want to mourn? You're probably going to want to be by yourself. I know I do. That's what I do if I um, am mourning somebody, if I'm suffering something. And if I don't want to be by myself, I just want to sit and be with somebody that understands me, somebody that knows me. And so this is Jesus, right? He wants to be alone. He wants to just be with his father, having a conversation with him, right? And the conversation goes both ways. It's not just talking, it is listening too. And so I find myself doing this with God a lot. I don't want to just pray. My prayers aren't just me talking to God, but it is a little bit, a lot of bit about listening as well. So that's one reason why maybe we see Jesus withdrawing here. Another reason is from the first two verses uh, in Matthew 14, which we didn't talk about all that much. Um, But Herod's view of who Jesus is, the fame of Jesus finally caught up to uh, Herod about Jesus. And so he thought, wow, this must be John the Baptist reincarnate. So now this hatred that he had to kill John the Baptist, he is now throwing on Jesus. And Jesus realizes what this looks like for him now, that he now has somebody after him to kill him. And if that's the case, he better get out of Herod the Tetrarch, the ruler of a quarter. He better get out of that quarter, out of his jurisdiction, so that he isn't there um, waiting for Herod's wrath. So he leaves. Um, So like I said, this is maybe two different explanations as to why he's gone. I think it really is a combination of both. You know, Jesus, fully man, fully God. It makes sense that he would be mourning death and it also makes sense he would be leaving because his time had not yet come to die Um, that is not how it was proclaimed in all these uh, hundreds of prophecies in the old testament for how the messiah would come and die it was not his time so he had to leave he had to get out of the quarter Um, so it doesn't take long uh, in these verses before jesus is no longer alone Um, we see here that uh, for matthew that the crowds heard of his traveling And so they went to the shore so they could meet him there. And verse 14, um, what do I do when I want to be alone? And and I see a lot of people. If I were coming up on verse 14 to that shore, I saw a bunch of people, I'd probably turn around or I'd probably land and just walk away. Uh, But Jesus doesn't do that. Uh, Jesus doesn't just go home. He has no place to rest his head. And he doesn't want to turn around. And so what do we see him do? We see him healing the sick. Um, Luke 9.11, the account of this story, says that Jesus welcomes them. <laughs> and when I think about welcoming somebody, uh, it's usually at my house. Hey, welcome to my house. It's where I live. Welcome. So Jesus, from a boat, arrives to a shore in another land, and he welcomes them. How does he have the power to do this other than realizing that they are there really just to see the Son of God? They're here to hear about him. And... Uh, 
And so Jesus is never too busy, right? He never needs to be left alone before he has time to see you or hear from you or heal you. He has compassion on his sheep. And so compassion is the overarching thread through all of these verses that we're looking at today. Um, compassion is in the Greek, again, New Testament written in Greek, splancht uh, nidzomai is about my best pronunciation of the Greek here. And uh, this is actually, the definition of this in Greek is to be moved as to one's bowels, hence to be moved with compassion or have compassion. And so the bowels at that time were thought to be the seat of love and pity. Um, I, we don't really use bowels today to describe love and pity. I'd imagine that would be kind of strange if we did, and there'd probably be a lot of interesting after-meal opportunities to show your compassion. Um, but I think we would use it in terms of our gut, right? You know, our gut feeling. This is a little bit more of what the, uh, what the bowel is um, in regards to what they thought of the seat of love and pity. So compassion, splankt needs am I. It's used 12 different times in the New Testament. Okay, um, and so nine of these 12 times are either Jesus saying he has compassion, somebody writing saying that Jesus has compassion, or directly relating compassion to Jesus Christ. And then two, uh, and then the other three times are when Jesus shares a parable. Uh, two of these um, parables are the, the character is, that is feeling compassion in the parable is the character that represents Jesus, represents God. Uh, one of these, Matthew 18, 27, is uh, the Lord feeling compassion on the servant and forgiving his debt. There was that Lord, he had the servant, he forgives his debt, he has compassion on him, and that is representative of God in our lives, having compassion on us. The other is in Luke fifteen twenty, um, the parable of the prodigal son. The father sees his son a far way off. He has compassion, and he runs to him. So again, these are characters representing Jesus. And then the other one um, is Luke ten thirty three. Uh, in which Jesus is telling us how to be a neighbor with uh, the Good Samaritan. And the Good Samaritan, while is isn't necessarily just Jesus, Jesus is using this as an attribute of God that we should be showing to others in being a neighbor. Um, so it's this compassion that threads itself through all of this stuff, and it's the compassion that God truly feels uh, for us. And so when I think about compassion, um, I immediately think to one of my newfound I would still call it a newfound favorite book of the Bible, um, Jonah. Jonah is a, a book of the Bible that I really love. It's not too long. It's four chapters. You could probably read it all as I actually tell this. But one of the things that I love so much about Jonah is how incorrectly I thought of it from when I was a child. I think it's a pretty common childhood story. So for me, when I was a kid, everything that I thought I knew of Jonah was that he was a prophet. You know, God tells him, hey, go tell Nineveh to turn from their ways. And he's scared. He doesn't want to talk to people. So he leaves, and then God's mad that he leaves. So he punishes him by having a fish swallow him, spits him out. And so he realized he did wrong. So he goes and he tells Nineveh, hey, um, turn from your sin. They do it, and now Jonah's a hero. When I was a kid, I thought that was the story. That is not the story, actually. Um, And so when I read this, it was one of those Holy Spirit moments, right? When we read the Bible, we read the Word, and we're reading Scripture that we've read before, and all of a sudden it... (laughs) makes a little more sense. We have an understanding now. We talked a lot about understanding in the past few weeks. How important it is not to just hear, but to understand the word of God. And having our thought about who God is um, should be in line with our faith. Faith and thought are not on opposite sides of a spectrum. 
they should be together. Um, and so I'm reading Jonah, and, uh, and I finally understood this and, and understood it a little bit better. And I realized that God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh because they are not honoring God. Tell them to turn from their ways so that they might seek me. And Jonah says, I don't like them. I think you should punish them. I think it's okay if you kill them. So I don't want to go talk to them. It'd be like a Cleveland Browns fan going to Pittsburgh to teach them how to tailgate. Why would you do that? You don't like the Steelers. You don't want them to learn how to have fun. I'm fine where I am. Let them go ahead and do what they're doing. And so, so Jonah, instead of obeying God, decides that he's going to leave. He's going to get away from there because he wants Nineveh to suffer. So he gets on a boat. While he's on the boat, a storm is there. The people on the boat realize that God, uh, that somebody had disobeyed God. They cast lots. They realize that Jonah is disobeying God. So what do they do? If they want to calm the storm, it's his fault. They throw him overboard. There goes Jonah. And this fish isn't there to punish Jonah. The fish is there swallowing Jonah, actually saving him. It is God's provision, not his punishment, which I never thought about. I don't know if I was taught that as a kid. Maybe I wasn't. I just didn't listen. And so he, in the fish, realizes his wrong. He um, turns from his ways. He thanks God for saving his life. And he gets spit out onto the land. And when he's on the land, he is called again to Nineveh to go share with them that they need to turn from their ways. So what does Jonah do? Jonah goes, and he tells them what they're doing is wrong. They turn from their ways. And then God spares the city. They turn from what they were doing wrong. They listened. They understood the word of God through this prophet Jonah. They turn from their ways, and God saves them. And then Jonah, at the end of this, is not happy. You feel like he's grown in his faith. He was just in a fish. He thanked God for still having his life. But Jonah isn't happy. He is exceedingly angry, it says in chapter 4, verse 1. He feels stupid that he went and told him because he knew God was going to change his mind anyway, as he says. And he's actually mad at God for the compassion that he shows to the city of Nineveh. And so I want to actually read um, the end here of Jonah 4, verses 5 to 11. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east. This is after all this has happened. Sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it made shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Sounds a little bit like a baby here. I sound a little bit like a baby sometimes when I talk to God. And the Lord said, you pity the plant. We already said pity is one of these words used for compassion. You have compassion for the plant for which you didn't labor. You did nothing for that. You didn't make it grow. You didn't help anything in its growth. And which came in to being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the right hand from their left, and also much cattle. So God tells Jonah, you have compassion for this plant, and you didn't even do anything for this plant. 
God is showing Jonah, look what I did. Why would I not have compassion for 120,000 people in downtown Cleveland? Well, we might be at 300,000. Why would I not have compassion on these people that I have labored for, that I actually sent my son to go die for, that I have made grow in their faith? Why wouldn't I have compassion on people? And God's, God treats you that way right now. Jesus looks at you with so much compassion, so much love, so much desperation for you to know him that he labored for you and he made you grow. And he does not want to destroy you. He wants you to know him and he invites people to know him as he sees the crowds. He sees the crowd and he invites them to know him and he goes and he heals them. He welcomes them into a relationship with him even as man on earth. So Jesus' compassion, which we see in verse 14, um, it leads him to heal the sick. And when this compassion continues to lead to provision for the crowd after the disciples decided that they had done their work. Okay, we, we look at John's account in chapter 6. Actually, the only thing he looks at in this miracle is the provision of the food. So here we are in Matthew 14, 16. Um, the disciples said, you know, we did our work. Let's get them away from here. And Jesus says, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. So we see here that if we have Christ, Christ is enough. We don't have to go away to go find something else. We don't have to send other people away from Christ to go find fulfillment. Jesus is pointing out through this physical example of providing physical need that this is what we can do spiritually too. If we have Jesus here, we don't have to tell somebody, hey, go somewhere else. He's right here. So the disciples tell Jesus in verse 17, we only have five loaves and two fish. We only have a little bit. We, we don't have much here. We just have a little bit. And that's how I feel a lot of times. I feel like I only have a little bit to bring to you, God. But he wants us to bring it there to him. So why does Jesus tell them to bring it to him? If Jesus is enough for people, why does he need bread and fish to give to other people? These earthly things aren't to be ignored. The earthly things are the bread and the fish the earthly needs. We still have needs in the world, and God doesn't turn his back on that. We talked about this about a month ago, that the things of this world, these earthly treasures, they aren't necessarily a bad thing, but all the things that we have, we should bring to Jesus, bring to God the way that they did with his food, and allow him to sanctify these things through his word and through prayer. The things that we have, we should be bringing to God. And me, for instance, I I love sports. I love soccer. I'm a soccer coach. I just played for four hours yesterday on an indoor court that makes me feel like I can hardly stand up today because I'm getting too old to play that much. I'm about to play a soccer game later today. I love soccer. I play soccer all the time. And so you could see this as an earthly treasure. And since my full treasure is complete in Jesus Christ, why would I bother playing soccer? Shouldn't I just quit playing sports since all that I need is in Jesus? Well, if I'm called to that, then yes. If I am now putting my identity in myself as a soccer player, which I'm definitely not, um, then yeah, maybe I do give it up because I should have my full identity placed in being a child of God. But if that's the case, if I'm not called to quit a sport, then what do I do with this? Well, I bring this to God. I allow him to sanctify this gift that he's given me. And now I play as an act of worship to God. The way that you raise your kids shouldn't be to glorify yourself. It should be to glorify God. 
the way that we work downtown in our job should be used to glorify God. It's not a bad thing to work. It's not a bad thing to make money unless you're putting your identity in that. But if you're offering that up to God and allowing him to sanctify that, having him pray over that, if you're praying over that, it's not a bad thing. And so the things that we have, when we bring it to God, we see him multiplying it often. So verse 19 Um, Jesus takes what the disciples brought and he blessed it. Blessing it, in this case, is giving thanks for it, right? We bless our food often. And I know I've talked to my brother saying that, you know, praying and blessing the food is like the weirdest part of the prayer, right? Like the best part of the prayer is being able to talk to God and, and hear from him. So why do we do this? Well, we do it because we're thanking him. To bless our food is to thank God for providing that food. And so when we see Jesus praying, when we see him blessing this food, thanking for this food. He isn't praying to the Father. He isn't saying, please multiply this so that it will feed the 5,000 men plus women and children. So it's probably nine or 10,000 people. He isn't saying that. He doesn't pray just to multiply it. He just takes it and he thanks God for it, trusting that his will will take place. And the will in this case was to grow it. The five loaves, the two fish, he brings it there. He doesn't pray for it to multiply our $5.02. We don't bring and say, God, multiply this. I need to get rich. We need to instead just give thanks to God for that $5.02, which I don't even know if that will get you a meal at Burger King anymore. So what is the outcome? We see in verse 20, they all ate. He prayed over it. He blessed it. They start passing this out, and a miracle is happening. It wasn't all of a sudden all there and they came. No, they just start passing it out and it just doesn't stop. They all ate. They were all satisfied. And each of the disciples end up with their own basket of leftovers. There's 12 baskets left over of this extra food. Provision to the fullest extent. And not just provision for the now, but even for more. It's abundant. So he feels compassion on us. Jesus felt compassion on this crowd and he gives them provision. He feels compassion on us. He felt compassion on the 120,000 Ninevites, and he even feels compassion on Jonah, who wanted them to die at the start, helps them turn from their ways, and still wants them to die. God still feels compassion on Jonah. He feels compassion on us, his creation, even though we decide we want to play by our own rules, we want to live under my own authority, I want to do what I think is best. Jesus still has compassion on us. And despite our turning our backs on God, he doesn't turn our backs on us, and he never will. Instead, Jesus came that he might be the provision for our brokenness. We are born into a broken world ever since the fruit, ever since sin entered the world, and we chose to live not for God, but for what we wanted to do. We've been born into this brokenness. And so Jesus came that he might fulfill this brokenness fulfill us in our brokenness. And so Paul writes in Timothy, um, you know, I wrote this sermon. I've planned this before. And just yesterday, an email was sent out to the whole church. I don't know if you got the email. If you didn't, you should get added to the email list. It would be a really cool thing. And um, the verse that I'm looking at here, 1 Timothy 1, uh, verses 13 to 16. This happened to be in the email that somebody shared uh, with the elders of the church. And so this shows um, that Jesus is the provision of our brokenness. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, this is Paul writing to Timothy, his disciple. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly 
and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost sinner, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. We are broken. We can't fix it, but God can. Eternal life. This is our provision. This is giving us life and life more abundantly. He fills us up when we need more. And we all need more of Jesus Christ. He's our provision in abundance. Psalm 37, 19 says, They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance. So those that Christ feeds, he fills. And this is an everyday thing. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit every day. When we pray to receive Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, when we receive salvation, we are now indwelt with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and baptizes us, and we are now indwelt with the Holy Spirit. We were locked and sealed for salvation. But being indwelt with the Holy Spirit, maybe this is semantics, but I'm saying it is different than being filled with the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is a daily thing. And I like to think about it as being on an escalator in which I'm walking up, but it's going down. I always did that when I was a kid. I don't know why that's so fun to go up the down escalator. But that's kind of what our spiritual walk is like. If I'm standing in the middle of this escalator going down and I don't take steps of faith to grow in my faith, I'm naturally going to be brought down further away from God who is at the top of the escalator. And so our salvation lies in being indwelt with the Holy Spirit, yes, but I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit daily. And so how can we be filled with this Holy Spirit daily? We can act on our faith, right? We can share what we know of Jesus with one another and with others that have never even heard about Jesus. If we do share, it will encourage you. Having conversations about Jesus with people that don't care about Jesus isn't necessarily discouraging. It's it's good. It's good to talk. Christianity is one of the only religions that actually accepts an invitation to talk about your faith openly with other people. It really is. I don't need to prove my point. I don't need to try to be right because God is right. I need to follow God, and I want other people to come along with me. I don't want other people just to go ahead and believe what I believe. No, I want them to see the way that I live my life so I can live alongside with them. It's not trying to prove a point. It's having a conversation. And so if we do this... (laughs) When we take these steps of faith and act on this, we will see abundance. God will provide. He will be our provision in this. And there will be leftovers. Even here we see leftovers. 10,000 people probably eat. And they eat to the fullest. And so for us, now that we have this scripture, we see what this looks like. How can we obey this passage? Um, If you are somebody that's in the crowd, if you are somebody that, heard Jesus was coming on this boat. He was going to land here, and I'm just a part of the crowd. I've heard about Jesus. I know some people that talked about Jesus. He sounds really cool, so I'm in this crowd. I'm here. If you're waiting on the shore for Jesus to come so that you can see him, I want you to know that he loves you. He has compassion on you, and it's a great day today that you can choose to no longer just be in the crowd. 
but Jesus has compassion on you. And if you let him, he will heal you of our broken sin nature, and he will give you eternal life through Jesus. And so just as we read in 1 Timothy, why will he do this? To display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So if you're in the crowd, don't be anymore. Please don't just be in the crowd anymore. Become a disciple of Jesus Christ. And if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, how do we obey this? Well, we need to trust the call in our lives and be bold in passing out the bread and the fish. So who passes out the bread and the fish in this scenario? Jesus prays for it. He blesses it. And then he gives it to the disciples, and the disciples pass it out. And this is representing the way that the gospel is shared in our world today from us. God calls us to share and it won't come back void. So if you are a disciple, go to the crowd. I pray that we can have compassion as Christ has compassion and share our faith. There will be plenty left over, I promise. Let the compassion that Jesus feels towards you and towards the ones that you know fuel your fire to share your faith. God is our provision. And I think this is a thing that we see every day there are things we don't want to give up to God. And I see this in my own life. I, I see this in what I'm doing right now in teaching. This scares me a lot, doing this. I'm just being honest with you guys. I'm not looking for pity. I'm not looking for anything like that. This is something where I need God's provision. I need to trust in God. And so how do I do it? I give him the little bit that I have. I don't, I don't have very much. I have plenty of other jobs and other work and other people and other things. And so what if I try to do this in my own power, if I try to teach scripture for my own power, for my own strength, it's not going to be very abundant or full. But if I give up my time to God, he can multiply that. If I'm sacrificing my alone time so that I can prepare a sermon, well, what's the point? I'm missing the point. I need to be loving God first and other things come out of that. He will be our provision, and if we give him what we have, he can multiply that. And that's where we're left today. We, we want to give him the little bit that we have. I don't care if you haven't known Jesus long. Maybe you feel like you don't have a good theology or a good understanding of Scripture yet, so you shouldn't talk about Jesus. Or maybe you don't even know what theology means, and that scares you from talking about Jesus. It doesn't matter. God is your provision And if you pass it out, it'll keep on going, and you'll be encouraged. And through doing that, that is one way we'll continue to walk and see God for who he is and walk up this escalator and not be brought down further away from God on a daily basis. That's what I have to share from these verses, these scripture from God's word today. Let's pray. God, we thank you for what you've given to us in this life. And God, sometimes we might not think it's a lot, we might not think it's enough, but I thank you that your word tells us that it is enough, that your word tells us this provision is enough, that you will give us more if we give it up to you. God, I pray that we can find our identity in you as a child of God. And that we won't try to live out our lives based on what I can do on my own strength so that I will 
give it up to you. That I will put my faith, my full hope, my full trust in you, Jesus Christ. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.